So who felt tired this week and last week after serve home? Who's lying? <laughs> yeah. It was exhausting. It was exhausting. But some things are. And some good things are. And exhaustion doesn't always have to be a negative thing. And we think about burnout, like, well, I've done too much. But I think with seeing God do miracles, there's also something of an aftermath. There's a then what? There's a time post-miracle where God has done something great, where then it's like, there's like a vacuum created afterwards. And I don't think that's the same thing as burnout. I think it's actually a beautiful, quiet place. But I think it's a time where we're especially vulnerable. And so I was thinking about our vulnerability and thinking about myself being tired these last couple of weeks and thinking, that's a good tired. And I want to be able to be tired and like be a real person, not have to just like tough it out and be on to the next thing. But when we're tired, we have no reserves. We have less self-control. We have less clear thinking. We're vulnerable in ways. Jesus, right, as he headed out to be tempted, he, he was vulnerable because of the physical and spiritual condition that he was in. And so I started thinking about, like, I just want to have a Sunday where we say it's okay to be exhausted, where we encourage one another, where we don't have to have it all together, and look at it in a different light. Not look at it as something's wrong. Depletion isn't always a problem, but it's definitely a danger, but it also can be an opportunity. If we're at our weakest, we're going to probably try to find something to make us feel better. We look for sources of comfort. And so for some people, maybe these last couple of weeks, we've been too tired, and so we've just eaten junk food. We probably lost 15 pounds sweating during serve home. And maybe we put on the same 15 again with like Snickers bars afterwards. But there is something comforting about that. That's a real physical thing. It's just not the kind of comfort that's going to help us in the long run. It's like a short-term comfort with a long-term cost. But it's not just food. Sometimes people will turn to relationships, sexuality. Sometimes people will turn to buying things. That gives us this, this feeling within us. Has anybody had any impulse buys the last couple of weeks because it felt good and I need that thing right now? Maybe. And it's almost like, okay, recognize where we are in this life cycle of a miracle. A miracle is not something that's like spur of the moment. It happens in a moment. Do you realize that every miracle has been planned out by God? Miracles, signs, wonders, and the power of God, it's chosen. So there's been the time leading up to it, our calling to be present at that miracle. God's power poured out. But then it's like we're filled with all the power of God in that moment. We're, we're surrounded by it. And then he's like, I'm planning for my next miracle. And we feel in that time, like, well, how come I feel so worn out? How come I feel so poured out? And our, our, our comforts can be our biggest problem. But I'd like, I'd like it if we could reimagine that moment as being a wonderful opportunity to glorify God. What if in our most tired moments, what if when we are our weakest, after we've seen God do great things and now we're feeling this kind of like low point in our lives, what if 
we choose to turn to him? What if the comforts that are tempting us and calling out to us are not what we turn to? Isn't that a beautiful thing? How do you think God would respond to that? We know we don't have anything in the tank and all these things would be easier. And yet we don't turn to them. We turn to him instead. It's actually a spiritual growth moment. And talking about comfort made me think of this quote that I'd like to read to us. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism. So this is old school. This is 1500s. This is the um, Reformation time. It's the, the Protestant church, the Presbyterian church, uh, eventually, that we see today, roots of it, that formed this curriculum to teach church folk and church kids the basics of the faith. So it's questions with answers. If you were in a Catholic church, if you grew up in that, you understand CCD with questions and answers. It's similar to that, but um, this is within kind of the Protestant tradition. Anyway, the first question is kind of a summary question. It's a great one. I, I'm reminded of it a lot. And the Heidelberg Catechism asks first, what is your only comfort in life and death? What is your only comfort in life and death? Feels like that's a good question we should know the answer to, but it also instantly brings to mind all the things that are false sources of comfort. Um, what are some things we turn to for comfort? Um, we escape into books, we read, um, we watch TV and movies, we escape into, into entertainment that way, and it is comforting. It's like a, a soothing, relaxing moment. Um, but will any of those be a source of comfort in death for us? No. So they're short term. And will they actually be a source of comfort in the things that we need comfort with? Probably not. They're escaping situations that we'll have to eventually come back to even in the relative short term. So the answer that these scholars and these wonderful Christians in our, our heritage wrote down is a beautiful one. I just want to read it to us. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own. But I belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. And he makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. It's this wonderful kind of summation of the gospel. It's now and it's later and it's his providence. It's his sustenance. It's our desire, but it's his mercy. It's, it's the whole gospel in a couple of sentences. So if this is true and this is our source of comfort, then I thought, well, what are the ways that God meets us in our low points? How can we meet each other in our lowest points and what can we learn? And so there are four specific people in scripture. There's Elijah, there's Jonah, there's Jesus, and there's Paul. And so we're you know, covering the gamut of Old and New Testament. This is how God's people have always reacted. Um, I want it to be okay for me, for example, on a Monday morning to be like, I'm toast because preaching yesterday felt like God spoke and it was just a miracle. I don't know how he did what he did or what, but it was beautiful. And now I'm like a sponge. And not have that feel like spiritual failure. Not have that feel like I couldn't say that to someone without feeling like, oh, the pastor, he's barely hanging on by a thread. <laughs> this guy's not going to make it. I don't want that for you either. I don't want every time we ask each other how you're doing, the answer to just be fine. 
could be empty, hollow, hopeless, afraid, angry, frustrated, discouraged. Those are fine answers, and they don't deny or defeat your faith. They actually just point to the moment that you're in and the opportunity you have for God to meet you there. And so I want to be encouraged by these scriptures. Uh, The first one's in 1 Kings 19. Turn there, or I can just read it for you. But Elijah, this one to me baffles me. But then it doesn't, because we have experiences with God that are so great, and then you feel just so tired and spent afterwards. But do you remember the story of Elijah? He calls down fire from heaven and like burns up a whole offering, and the whole day before him, he had been taunting all the priests of Baal. Why don't you have your God burn up the offering? What's the matter? Can't your God do it? What is he on vacation? What is he doing? He's taunting them. And then with one prayer at the end of the day, he says, God, show yourself to be God just obliterates the whole altar with the stones, everything is just incinerated by lightning. And it was a miracle and God had planned for it and God used it to turn around the nation of Israel. How could he possibly have left that moment discouraged? Like what the heck? If you don't believe that God is God after seeing that, you're never good. But it wasn't that he didn't believe God. What happened to him? What happened to him after God's power was revealed? He was completely hopeless. And like it boggles the mind. How are you hopeless after you just saw something impossible happen? But can anybody relate to that? Can anybody relate to that? You see something impossible happen. You know God is God and yet you feel hopeless. It's because we're not in heaven yet. We still have these bodies and we're not perfected. And guess whose power it wasn't? Ours. Guess whose power it was? God's. So when he steps in, we have this feeling of immensity that we know we're connected to his plan. And when he steps back, it's like, oh man, I am small without him. I couldn't do that on my own. Elijah couldn't have done that miracle the next day. It was that moment and that time, God's power. It wasn't Elijah. Elijah isn't Zeus. He can't call down thunderbolts whenever he wants. It happened once, exactly once in his entire life. And afterwards, he was completely hopeless. (laughs) I just find that fascinating. I find it encouraging. I want to be reassured that we don't all have to be super Christians all the time. And in those low moments, that's actually when God has something special and quiet and precious for us. So don't let Satan twist us up into knots when we're low. Say, oh, this is the aftermath. It's the life cycle of a miracle. God's power. And then low. And then what comes next? There is always a next. God is not finished. So... Elijah experienced hopelessness, uh, 1 Kings 19. Let's read it together. My phone will open the scripture. Oh, that's it. My timer's up. Got to be done. Give me a few more minutes. Do you mind? I just need a couple more. My phone doesn't want to open it. That's fine. Can't stop me. We got Bibles everywhere. Okay, so the priests of Baal are then pursued and killed by the Israelites. The gods, the, the showdown of gods was evidently just a showdown of one god. That was what was proven. And so all the, the servants and the worshipers of the other gods were pursued and killed. And then the Lord sends the rain that he had been withholding for three years. 
Alan, you remember we read the scripture during the, the prayer for healing last week, and it was talking about Elijah. This one man prayed one prayer and no rain for three years, and then he prayed again and the rain came. This is that moment in his life. So I'd love for you to read more of this this week too and tie it into the things that God's doing in your life. But First Kings 19, Ahab the king told Jezebel, his queen, all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So you will be dead by this time tomorrow, says the queen. Then he was afraid. And he arose and ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey out into the wilderness. And he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die. Saying, is it enough? Or it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life. For I am no better than my fathers. You know, I, I might as well be dead. I'm no better than my, those who have gone before me. And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and behold, there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, and he ate, and he drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave, and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant and they've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. I looked this up this morning. This just literally means utter silence. It's not even the still small voice of the Lord. It's just the quiet. It's the absence of sound. It's like, get ready. It's like the breath before the word. And guess what? God was in the absence of sound. In that moment for Elijah. So when Elijah heard the utter silence, the complete absence of sound, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him then. Here's the still small voice. The voice comes and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. And they've thrown down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. We need to insert Pastor Dave version. We're going to make a verse 14.2. The Lord ignored everything that Elijah said. And then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness. When you arrive, you shall anoint this man to be king, and this man to be king, and this man to be your apprentice. God knew that what Elijah needed then was rest, some food, and he needed to re-experience the presence of God. But God, it, what is it? The wind first, right? Let me not get this wrong. Wind first, earthquake second, fire third, and then the absence of sound. We sometimes want God to repeat his power the same way he did it the last time. Give me that same experience. I want to serve home again next week. I want that mountaintop experience I had at that retreat every weekend. 
And so we go back looking for more of the same. God's like, you want power? You want this win? It's not always going to be that way. Not today. Why are you here? I know why you were at the altar. He doesn't ask him why you were there. He said, I know what that moment is. What's this moment in need of? And Elijah didn't need a miraculous sign. He didn't need another feat of strength from God. He needed to be quiet with the Lord and just have God meet his needs and say, guess what? I'm not done with you yet. He got his next calling. I wonder if Elijah thought he was over. His entire life was to get to that lightning bolt. Maybe he thought that. God's like, it's good to be with me. It's good to be quiet. We don't always need the biggest miraculous feats of strength from God. Are you okay just sitting quietly with me here? And Elijah was. And he's like, okay, well then let's get back to work. I give you food. I give you my presence. I'll provide. So in the case of hopelessness, if this is what we ever experience, what God calls us to is his presence. When we are hopeless, don't try to solve all the problems. Don't try to figure out how everything's going to work out. God doesn't give him all the answers to all of his questions. Just sit quietly. Asking God to part the heavens and give me a sign. Nope. Shut up. Sit down. Be quiet. We do precious little of that anyway. But have you ever thought about your silence maybe being an antidote to hopelessness? Hopelessness is about details. This can't be done. That bit can't be done. I can't do it. Well, that's true. But it's hopeless if you think about it. Being in God's presence is the opposite. I'm nothing. It doesn't matter. I don't need to be or do. God's got this. So we need presence as the antidote to hopelessness. Uh, I, I'm still just always baffled that Elijah, of all people, in the aftermath of that miracle, could have no hope and could want to die. Like the crowning achievement. What would any of us have given to be Elijah in that moment? To taunt every other God out there, say one prayer and... We see God work. We've seen miracles. Maybe not that one, but certainly those of our own. All right, flip forward to the prophets. Jonah chapter 4. This one's a bit of a shorter passage. You'll see uh, his thoughts in the aftermath. All right, so yes, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Let's get into our prophets here. Jonah, Micah. Everybody got all the minor prophets memorized? I could probably say them, but I'd have to go through the whole list. Some here can probably sing them if they were in VBS as a kid. Anybody sing the books of the Bible? Who can sing the books of the Bible? I won't make you. I promise. Two? Three? Maybe there's a, there's a half hand. Yeah, some. That works. The songs work. I love teaching our kids those things. It embeds the Word of God in them. All right. So we know Jonah's story. We know he ran away. And then there was a miraculous event both to bring him to Nineveh. You know, the great fish swallowed him up, spit him out. But then he goes to Nineveh and an entire city, basically an entire nation is converted by his preaching. This is like one of us going to a different country and, and preaching to the king, the president, the whatever. And then the entire country is becoming Christians. Like this is the power of God at work. How could you see that and then be angry and frustrated afterwards. Because fear and hopelessness isn't the only response. When we're in those low places, sometimes we're just grumpy, bitter, angry, frustrated, irritable. You know, it, it doesn't, our low doesn't show itself in what was me. It shows itself in everything's the worst. And I hate you, and I hate you, and I hate this, and I hate that. It's the same thing that's happening. It's the aftermath of a miracle. See how Jonah responds and then see what God says to him. So in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah is displeased 
this great work of God because he was a racist or whatever the right word would be. Um, he despised the people of Nineveh that God had used him to help save. He didn't want that outcome, but he knew it was going to happen, which is why he ran away. But now all these people who are his enemy, the people that he despises, now have God's favor. And he's frustrated. He's angry. So he walks away from that miracle. It displeased John exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in steadfast love. You're relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Is this, is this the right move for you? Like, that, that's what you should be doing right now? You should be mad at me and them and yourself? And so Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and he made a booth for himself there, a shelter. And he sat under it in the shade until he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might shade, be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So God blesses him in a small way. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah. Just like serve home. Again, analogy here. Don't miss it. And the sun beat down upon the head of Jonah, uh, so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And said, it is better for me to die than to live. So here's God's response. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for, we could say, a simple plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you didn't labor or didn't make it grow, came, from, came to being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and even as much cattle? God doesn't, what's the right word, assuage all of Jonah's anger. He doesn't meet all his points. He gives him perspective. He's like, okay, you're angry about this, but you're small. And you see a limited scope of things. And you don't understand the full picture. Then you're mad about tiny, tiny things. Recognize from God's perspective the bigger thing that God's trying to do. In our times of frustration, I don't think God coddles us. I don't see that in Scripture. I don't see that with Job at the end of his time. God doesn't come. He's like, well, you're mad. You're mad. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. He's like, who are you? And who am I? Let's start there. Because it's really hard to be angry when we recognize that we're just a small piece of everything that God is doing. So God gives perspective. This may be an antidote to frustrations that we're feeling. When we're in those low points, we're frustrated by the details of our lives, by our lack of energy, lack of ability. Maybe we step back. Maybe we recognize God's at work with every human on the planet simultaneously. Maybe we step back and recognize that we wouldn't even have the pleasure of being frustrated with the wonderful things that we're frustrated with unless he gifted us the lives that he has and the people in the church and the ministries that he has. Maybe we appreciate and show honor to him by saying, I don't have control over the situation and that's okay because I'm just a small piece of a much larger picture. So you see, with the hopelessness, God meets needs and he says, let's be quiet. But with the anger and the frustration, I think he says, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Take a step back, gain some perspective. Recognize that the story is much bigger than you.
So we move on. Two more really quickly. This one's in um, Matthew chapter 4. This is Jesus. And hopefully, as we read these, the, the pattern here, the life cycle of the miracle is becoming more and more evident. I hope it is this and then one more passage and we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up with that and with, with communion. But in the temptation of Jesus, what's the low point you think that he gets to? He's not angry, right? It's not a frustration. He's not hopeless. We don't see that in Jesus. I, I think it could even qualify as a sin probably, right? To be lacking hope. <laughs> so we know Jesus didn't sin. I don't see hopelessness in him. What we have from him is just pure physical exhaustion. Pure. This is why the best counselors and therapists recognize that our bodies are spirit and flesh together. And sometimes the best recipe for like bad faith is more sleep. And sometimes the best recipe for better health is more prayer. Because we're interconnected in ways that with Jesus here, you see him low, but he's wise enough, all-knowing enough, to recognize that he's not done anything wrong to be completely depleted. But he is tempted at that point tempted to use his power for himself. And we see how God meets his needs. So in Matthew 4, it says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Have you ever thought about the relationship of this with the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. The Spirit leads Jesus into temptation. That's just like an interesting thing. How do we pray for temptation? I always feel like with the Lord's Prayer, help me not fall into it. Almost as if like it's a pit. I'm happy to have God lead me to the edge of it, but like grab the back of my shirt as I teeter over the edge and just don't let me fall into. The into to me is a very powerful word in that statement because it does seem like at times God brings us to the edge of temptation, but then it's on us. It's not on him for what we respond to. And Jesus responds with all the beauty of God's power being God in human form. So he's a great example, but um, be thinking about that. As you you pray the Lord's Prayer the next time, um, would you pray that God would lead you up to temptation, but not quite into it? Feels like I don't want to pray that, but maybe that's even more accurate to how God leads us through temptation. Jesus faced it, we will too. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Massive understatement. Verse 3, the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered with scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. This sounds like Jonah. This sounds like Elijah. They were weak in the mouth of God. The word of God came to them as their sustenance. So Jesus knows this. He quotes this. The temptation does not get the better of him. He does not turn to his power for his comfort. What is Jesus' only source of comfort in life and in death? Knowing that he is God and that the limitless power of God is his and that he is beloved by the Father and that the Father's plans cannot fail, right? If we rephrase the Heidelberg Catechism with Christ in mind, um, he knows. It's just so obvious what's happening to him in that moment. And he says, this is the truth. I will not take the false form of comfort. Uh, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. Twisting scripture. Satan loves that. He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Jesus says to him again, defeating scripture with temptation. Notice this. This is how it works. This is our example from Christ. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the devil for the third time took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kings of the world, all their glory, said to him, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So then the devil, 
left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So this is much like the plant for Jonah. This is much like the angels for Elijah. This is the pattern. God meets his people after. But it's in that like lost, lonely, exhausted, fatigued, hungry place that we're never really sure if God's actually going to show up again. And we start to second guess all the things that we saw. Like, did God really do that? And we start to like lose the power of the encounter because of our feelings of emptiness in the moment. So Jesus, with his physical um, exhaustion here, he responds with scripture, sets the perfect example of how we're supposed to do it, but he waits for God to meet his needs. After the first fake, the second fake, and the third fake comfort, God is going to show up. And so he waits. That song that we sang earlier, the, the wait upon the Lord, we have to wait. You can't just tell God when you need to be filled and when it's going to happen and how it's going to There's waiting that's involved. But God came and met his needs. And so this brings us to Paul, our last example. This is 2 Corinthians um, 12. So if you want to turn there, if you just want to listen, either way. This is the Apostle Paul. So again, someone, if you're going to figure, these are the mightiest people in the faith that we can possibly list. Um, they are, like Paul is the one that had the light shine down from heaven and God speak to him and then he went blind for days and then came back. Like he was shipwrecked but didn't die. He was beaten and still like this guy has seen the power of God so many times. And God felt like it, that was going to be a matter of pride for Paul. And so this is one of our temptations as well. This one kind of ties into what Dominic said over Serve Home Week. Like the pride that gets in the way of everything. I think God, and we see by how God handled it and by how Paul described it, God was concerned that Paul was going to be proud because he had seen so much and experienced so much. And so God said, I'm going to keep you humble by making you weak. And God chose to make him physically weak so that he would continue to depend upon God's strength. That's just an interesting thing. It's not a punishment. <laughs> it's, it's humility. It's a humbling. And that's good for us. Let's hear it in Paul's own words, verse 5 of chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12, 5. He's talking about a man who experienced a wonderful vision from God. He said, on behalf of this man, I would boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. We don't like to do this. It's a very un-American thing to talk about what we're bad at, to talk about what we're afraid of, to talk about what we're weak in. Though if I should wish to boast, Paul says, I wouldn't be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. He's not going to talk himself up. He's just going to live his life and you can watch it and you can judge for yourself. I would love it if this would be a definition of our church family too. Like, we don't need to promote ourselves. We don't need to talk ourselves up. Let's just live it out. Let's love Jesus and love our neighbor and then let the world respond to that as they will. And that's what Paul does here. Where are we? To, to, to verse 7. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated, too high, too full of myself, we could say. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This means undeserved favor, right? Undeserved favor. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's made whole. It's made complete. It's fulfilled in our weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the 
power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. I am content with insults. I am content with hardships. I am content with persecutions. I am content with calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The things we see in all of these people that we can focus ourselves on in those times, all of them are honest. Right? Elijah, I hate my life. I want it to be done with. Jonah, same thing. Jesus, I don't have anything in the tank, but I'm not going to take the bait. Right? And Paul, I'm weak. I can't make myself strong. I think that honesty is the first key to us living in the aftermath of a miracle. Be honest with God. You can pray to Him and say, I'm really just frustrated. I'm really afraid. I'm really hopeless. I'm, I'm, I'm dying here. That's okay. The honesty is where each of them started. It's where Paul starts. I think that's where we start in our moving forward. Um, humility. I think we recognize that God is God. That's kind of how he shows up to all these people. He does an amazing thing, proves that he's God. And then afterwards, they're like, I can't do anything. And he's like, of course, because it was me. And that's the reminder we need. Paul was actually given some sort of torment in his flesh. Was it an illness? Was it a, a temptation? Was it a weakness? Was it an infirmity? Who knows? He doesn't say. Um, but God wanted him to have it. God wanted him weak in that way so that he could testify to the glory of God. We see in each of these that ultimately there's hope at the other end, right? So Elijah didn't have it and Jonah didn't have it, but eventually they got there. Eventually, we don't know actually if Jonah got there. We can ask him when we see him. Um, it, did he finally turn the corner with the Lord? But with Elijah, we see God had more for him. With Jesus, we see there's just the beginning of so much. With Paul, we know there was so much more after writing to the Corinthians that God used him for. Um, but if we're honest, if we stay humble, if we keep hope, and what I was thinking about for us, uh, I don't know how this would have related to Elijah. He eventually got an apprentice who could be with him. I don't know how it turned out with Jonah. Uh, Paul had the disciples, always had people like Timothy, but they always kind of huddled together with their people. It came back to their people. And I'd love for us to know the difference between rest and isolation because I think that would be really helpful for us in those low times. We need our people. We spent some time with family yesterday, and it was just good to be together. Um, Sometimes you just need to be with your people. And so sometimes you need sleep and rest, but sometimes that's a facade or a mask for isolating and separation. And that's where we're going to be at our weakest. That's where we're going to be most vulnerable. So I think if we keep those things in mind, we stay honest, we stay humble, we keep hope, and we huddle together with our people, then we'll see that on the other side of the miracle, there's more calling. God doesn't call everybody to one thing. It's like, oh, all right, Greg, you did your one thing. That's, that's not how it is. It's like God's doing a bazillion things simultaneously. And so he calls us into it. We like step out of the stream and he calls us back in. And we step out of the stream and he, call, he calls us in at just the right moment. So God has more for each of you. He has more for you to learn than you've learned so far. He has more for you to do than you've done so far. He has more quiet moments for you to experience than you've experienced so far. He has more friendships, Christian friendship, bonding for you than you've had so far. He's not done. And so that's the beauty of the miracle. It's also the, the, the deceptive kind of low point after it, where we can take all the wonderful things that God did and just turn right back to our own strength. But what if? What if 
We didn't care that we were low. We just owned it. What if we just recognize this is what it feels like after God's power is poured out? I'm going to hang on to hope. I'm going to huddle together with my people. And I'm going to wait for that next calling. Because if that just happened, what might be next? There's a predictable life cycle. We see it in Scripture to these miracles. And I don't want us to be unaware. That's how Paul starts by talking uh, about spiritual gifts. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. It's 1 Corinthians 13. I don't want to be uninformed, unaware, brothers, about spiritual things. So we prayed for miracles, right? I should have warned you that with the miracle comes the aftermath. That was my bad. I, I will do a better job prepping us for that next time. But it is to be expected. And it's a cost worth paying. Would Elijah have gone through that, chosen to go through that time of wanting to die if he knew that a few days before he could have seen the power of God? I hope so. I think so. Right? If we know that we'd be at the lowest point in our life or the most depressed feeling, but that before that would have gotten to experience the power of God, would we willingly pay that price? I think we should. I think we have. I think we are. I think it's how God works with his people. So this life cycle of calling and then power and then depletion, temptation, presence, renewal, calling again, uh, it's, what, it's what God does with his people and we're in the midst of it. And I hope that we'll get to see much more of it in the days ahead as God calls us into the next things that he'll call us into. But for the close of our service today, we have a chance to celebrate the greatest miracle I wonder, can you say, with that miracle, was there a, a letdown and a time of waiting afterwards? The disciples had to wait for the Holy Spirit. So maybe after the resurrection, where they're just meeting in the upper rooms and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting, even with that miracle, we see the same pattern repeated. But this is our opportunity to confess. I feel like Elijah needed that, right? He needed just a moment to say, sorry, God. Jonah needed that. Jesus didn't. Paul did. So for whatever things that we've experienced these past couple of weeks, um, I hope that this will be a renewal of our spirit, that this huddle together for all of us will be uh, exactly what we needed to kind of regroup, catch our breath, and then wait together. Wait to see what God calls us into next.